Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Employment Matters Podcast, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the world. I'm your host today, Susan Deneker with the law firm Steptoe & Johnson, PLLC in West Virginia. On the program, we span the globe and receive updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Joining us on the program today are Alan Hudson and Adam Childers with Crow and Dunleavy in Oklahoma. Alan and Adam, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thanks, Susan. This is Adam. I'm really excited to be back here on Employment Matters. This is a great podcast and it's really fun to be back. And of course, to get to see one of our ELA colleagues. What a great organization to be a part of. Yes, Susan, it's Alan here in Oklahoma City, just enjoying the beautiful hot weather that may or may not turn into tornado later this evening, but such is life in the plains during, you know, the the June tornado season. So good to be here. Well, gentlemen, it's my pleasure. It's always nice to be with my ELA colleagues. And I know you both have expertise on the important topic that we're going to talk about today. The NLRB under the Biden administration has given us plenty of topics to address in ELA podcasts, and the general counsel has not left us disappointed. We have something hot off the press from May 30th to talk about today. And Adam, I'm going to start with you. We've just gotten a memo, like I said, from the general counsel of the NLRB talking about non-compete agreements, something that is important to a lot of our clients across the country. Talk to us about what the general counsel has to say this time. Yeah, you're right. The NLRB has been active enough to give you fodder for a podcast a week, it would seem. But yeah, the most recent offering was on May 30th. That's when a memorandum from uh, general counsel went out to all of the NLRB's regional directors, advising them to find that really most non-compete agreements infringe on an employee's Section 7 rights under the National Labor Relations Act. This is, you know, by far the the most aggressive pronouncement we've seen so far, but it, it probably shouldn't be surprising given that this follows on the heels of, you know, back in January, early January, the Federal Trade Commission came out with a rulemaking process looking to find that non-compete clauses on workers are invalid. Now, that one got such a hot response that they've put off a vote on that until April of 2024. But that that was probably the clearest signal that non-competes were squarely on the radar for attack by administrative agencies. And the NLRB has followed that up we, yeah, with that memorandum that pretty much unequivocally says that that, you know, it, it chills the rights of workers to do everything from solicit folks to come to their shop or to go to another shop or to organize and unionize. Some of their arguments, you know, for us defense-minded attorneys might seem like a bit of a stretch, but they are unabashed in their full frontal attack on non-competes. Of course, like any good rule, there's some exceptions, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but that's where we find ourselves. And, and as you said, non-compete agreements are really ubiquitous across the United States. Here in Oklahoma, we have a little bit of an interesting situation in that we have we truly have very few true non-competes. We, we're more of a non-solicit state, but we still think there might be some ripple effects from this as well. So we're watching it carefully, as I know, you know, everyone who runs a business and uses these kind of agreements is and, and, and should be. Adam, you make really great points. As you mentioned, the FTC rule 
did create a lot of blowback from the business industry concerned about what a world without non-competes could look like. And this GC memo is broad in terms of scope. It relates to contracts with employees and severance agreements, those non-compete agreements. So Alan, talk to us. How does this impact employers, our clients? What do they need to be paying attention to here? Susan, that's a great question. And I think one of the principal questions that I've been fielding, and I think Adam's been fielding in the wake of the general counsel's memo is, hey, this doesn't apply to me because I'm a non-unionized workforce. We don't have union workers. And therefore, you know, the National Labor Relations Act does not apply to me. And that's a huge misconception. The National Labor Relations Act and the enforcement arm the National Labor Relations Board do very much have jurisdiction over non-unionized workforces. And so Section 7 of the NLRA, which generally provides employees the right to engage in concerted activities with respect to the terms and conditions of their employment, applies equally across the board whether you've got union workers or not. And so again, this general counsel memo is going to apply across the board to, you know, all workforces across the United States. Now, with that said, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act is not going to apply to independent contractors, managers, most supervisors, and public sector employees. So to the extent that you have a non-compete or other type of an employment agreement um, that is impacted by this, this internal memo, those folks should not be subject to scrutiny based on the general counsel's position. Thank you, Alan. And something that I think is important as a follow-up to that point is that those are fact-specific determinations, often who's a manager or supervisor and isn't covered by the National Labor Relations Act. So just the fact that you might call somebody a supervisor or manager is not good enough. That's going to require some close scrutiny here. Adam, I want to get back to you. You mentioned earlier that in Oklahoma, a lot of times non-solicitation agreements are used widely. What impact does the general counsel's memo on non-compete agreements impact other types of employment agreements? You mentioned non-solicitation agreements, often confidentiality agreements are used by employers. Can you speak to that for our listeners? Of course. Yeah, that's a big issue for us here in Oklahoma that we're watching intently. Oklahoma is unique. I think there's just one other state along with us. It's one of the Dakotas, and which one is escaping me right now. But we were originally a non-compete state. We used, you know, kind of the standard geographic and time limitations, rule of reason. But back in 2004, the Oklahoma legislature did away with non-compete, except for just very narrow exceptions, usually involving the sale of goodwill or the dissolution of a partnership. Otherwise, those are considered to be void and unenforceable, but we do have a specific statute, 15OS219A, which allows for non-solicitation to be direct solicitation to be prohibited by a departing employee of an established customer. Now, there's lots of fights that we have about all those different terms of art, but it does mean that by and large in Oklahoma, we see non-solicitation agreements as opposed to non-compete agreements. So on its face, you know, many Oklahoma employers are looking at this and saying, well, that probably doesn't impact us. But, you know, I'm going to amplify something that, you know, that, that we were talking about earlier, which is the reasoning, the rationale given by the NLRB for why 
it feels that this kind of rule is necessary. And one of the things that they focused on is that they believe that these non-compete agreements keep employees from soliciting coworkers to go to work for a local competitor. Well, if that's one of the principal aims of, of trying to curb that negative impact on a worker's Section 7 rights, I don't think it's a very big leap at all to then jump to a non-solicitation agreement and say, you know, we're, we're dealing with the same problem here. So I'm cautioning our client base to watch this closely, but also be aware that I think that a National Labor Relations Board investigator armed with the general counsel's memorandum probably doesn't have to seek much permission to make a similar argument that a non-solicitation is likewise having a chilling effect on the person's Section 7 rights. And so particularly in a state like Oklahoma, where there's not much unionization, you know, this can catch a lot of employers unaware. Alan and I have talked about it. I've seen an uptick in my NLRB cases, probably a threefold jump in the last couple of years. And that's even before this new initiative from the NLRB. And then as it relates to severance agreements, you know, we've already seen previous announcements from NLRB saying, essentially, if you're going to put confidentiality and non-disparagement in your severance agreements, which let's face it, those are just basic components of most every severance agreement that you know a good practitioner on the defense side creates. There, are, the argument by the NRB is that you know again with certain exceptions, that would be an infringement on Section Seven rights because if you can't talk about what you receive, well that could keep you from talking about the terms and conditions of the workplace, and if you can't disparage you know a company or at least engage in discussions that would be, you know, unflattering, even if potentially, you know, true, or at least in the mind of the speaker, then that poses problems as well. And so we're already dealing with that here in Oklahoma, working on more refined agreements and really taking a closer look at who you apply those kinds of provisions to. And and I know we'll talk about some best practices here in a moment, but so I think that, you know, whether your listeners are in a state where non-competes are kind of what's always been used, or if they're a non-solicit state or some hybrid therein, I think all of this is is very applicable to their situation and and worthy of of close inspection. I don't know if there'll be legislative changes that try to address it, but for right now, the the NLRA or NLRB is out front on this, and what they have to say is very negative for the use of those kinds of agreements and their corollaries. Adam, something I wanted to delve in a little deeper with you is You're talking about the NLRB decision, the board decision as it relates to severance agreements, but that was actually a board-issued decision. That's different than what we have here that we're currently talking about, which is a general counsel memo. Can you talk about the difference and how that may impact how employers might consider this GC memo and what it means in terms of enforcement? Yeah, so the GC memo is really, it's not binding. It's it's really almost like a, a signpost. This is what we're doing. Don't be surprised and, and be prepared for it, as opposed to a decisional outcome like that that generated the decision. I think that was McComb McLaren, the, the decision that had to do with the, the severance agreement. That has at least presidential effect. It's still subject to court review, but it is considered to be much more persuasive and have greater weight. And I'm glad you called that to the listener's attention because it's not to say that the memorandum should be taken lightly. It's very clearly a pronouncement of policy initiative. 
but it is not binding in the sense that an NLRB decision would be, or certainly not a court that reviews what the NLRB has done to see if there's any abuse of discretion. And I think we can, you know, Alan and I have talked about it. I think they probably had some targets in mind, and I think we'll see some some litigation very soon. And there's any number of arguments to be had here, one of the most interesting of which is, will there be an argument about the NLRB as an agency going outside of its bounds under this major questions doctrine that really, you know, kind of took front and center during the, the West Virginia EPA case last year? Now I'm taking you far afield, but you know, just that if I had to summarize it quickly, it's just that there's a lot of argument out there and now some major Supreme Court decision that basically says a lot of these agencies may be acting outside of the mandate given to them by Congress, and it's being used as a powerful tool to attack these kinds of initiatives. So all that rulemaking that we talked about that got pushed off until April of next year, let's say that that went through, that's a prime candidate for one of those major doctrine attacks. So. It's fascinating stuff, and who knows what the world of non-competes will look like here in just a couple of years, but the battleground and all the pieces on that chessboard are set. Adam, our listeners who have heard my podcast before know I get really excited by all this legal talk, and so I'm really glad you're pulling all of this in. I think one thing all three of us can agree on is, is that this is a major initiative of this board, of the general counsel. She's inviting right? A case to come before the board on this topic. I expect we'll see one soon based upon what she's put out in this May 30th memo. Alan, I want to bring you into this conversation. So we've put a lot out there for our listeners. Watch out for this. Beware of that. Oh my goodness. The sky isn't falling. We're not quite to the chicken little situation here, but there are probably some tips you have for our listeners about what are some best practices in light of this current memo on non-competes. Yeah, thank you. So what I would say, and this kind of doubles down on on what Adam covered, so I won't roll around in it too long, but unless you've got an agreement that is a true confidentiality provision that is protecting the company's trade secrets and other confidential and proprietary business information, I don't think any provision that you have in any type of agreement is safe with this board. And again, I think they've made that very clear, and we've touched on how they've done so. So I think the first thing you really need to do is look at the agreements that you have out there. Look at who you have entered those agreements. I think the first thing that you really need to do is to go out, do an audit, and determine who you've entered into these types of agreements with. Is it with non-management, non-supervisory level employees? Or across the board, do you feel pretty comfortable that the NLRB would decide that folks that you've entered into these agreements with rise to the level of management or supervisory level employees? I think the next step is to, once you've done that initial audit and and identified the universe of agreements that you have in your workforce, is to look at the scope of those agreements. What is it prohibiting the employee from doing? and analyzing whether or not you feel like that would infringe from the NLRB's perspective an employee Section 7 rights under the National Labor Relations Act. And then I think you've got to decide, can we go back and re-enter these agreements and make them more narrow to protect the business interests that we were initially uh, trying to protect? I mean, one thing that you know my clients are dealing with, and I'm sure everyone else's clients are dealing with, is what is the true risk that I end up in front of the National Labor Relations Board 
on a severance agreement or a non-compete agreement or a non-solicit agreement. In some states like West Virginia, where I think you've got a pretty active you know, union workforces, that risk may be much higher. In a state like Oklahoma, where while there's been an uptick in union activity and scrutiny from the National Labor Relations Board, we don't have very many unionized workforces. So again, in, in Oklahoma, maybe you can say we can take on a little more added risk because we don't think this is ever really going to become an issue. But these are all things you can't consider until you kind of determine you know, where you fall with respect to the universe and scope of these type of agreements within your workforce. Well, there's certainly a lot to talk about, and we have covered a lot of ground today. We've talked about the general counsel memo. We talked about NLRB decisions. We've talked about federal law, Supreme Court decisions. I'm fairly certain the three of us could talk for hours on these topics, but unfortunately, that's all of the time we have today. Alan and Adam, this has been a ton of fun. I knew that it would be. I hope that we can do this again, but thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Can't wait to do it again. And thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate you and the ELA. Okay. Well, we'll try to get another date to do this again. And I think that our listeners would love it too. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. If you would like to connect with Alan or Adam, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker. Thanks so much for listening.